I wanted to just share some reflections about how does our practice, how does our Dharma practice and wisdom teachings uh, have to, you know, how do we hold the, the circus that is this 18-month presidential election cycle? This is a reading. All parts of the earth are built over, trampled, full of commerce. Farms and fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated. Swamps are drained, and today's towns outnumbers yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, and governments, and human growth now so clogs the world that it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. Terulian, 150 to 200 AD. Roman Emperor. He thought it was bad then. (laughs) He hadn't been through a USA presidential cycle. (laughs) Yes. So, this is not the first time that humanity has gone through, you know, we're always going through something. There's always something. And um, I think I read that because it's helpful to have perspective. As nightmarish as some of this circus is, it's just one of the endless round of circuses in samsara, except they're not fun, they're painful and uh, deplorable, really. So there's a Zen koan, which is koan is a is a is a question that invites one to probe deeply and find find an answer from deep within one's being. And a student asks a teacher, "What is awakening? What is in, what is enlightenment?" And the master says. What do you think he's going to say? <laughs> what would you say? What is enlightenment? Clear seeing. Mm-hmm. Clear seeing. Being present. Being present. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, hawks are enlightened? Because they're pretty present. Could be. Just teasing. Um... So anyway, the answer to this koan, there are many answers, but this answer is an appropriate response. An appropriate response. What is, I think think the question may be, what is enlightened action? An appropriate response to the moment. So this is a great, so koan often leaves us with more questions. Well, what is an appropriate response? What is an appropriate response to my life, to my dilemma, to my struggle, to my mortality? to my ballot decision. More about that later. So when the king, when the Buddha was living um, sometime after his enlightenment and was um, counsel to the ruling elite 
at the time, which happened to be mostly princes, kings, and, and queens, and, um, and government officials. And many of them would come to visit him as they would visit spiritual teachers back in those days. And um, anyhow, so he was um, quite familiar with the politics and the feuding and the uh, squabbles that were going on then as they are now. Except they killed more people back then, maybe. I'm not sure, but that's, that's true. And um, anyway, this particular king, whose name I'll probably mispronounce, Virudaka, had been uh, humiliated in, in, in an event by the, the Shakyan people, who was the, the Buddha's uh, clansman where he was raised. And um, uh, had threatened uh, for a long time to um, uh, revenge, uh, seek revenge on, on the Buddha's uh, peoples. And so uh, had roused an army to, to within, 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 there was an excuse to invade, um, but, it was, but it was really about this past hurt. And the Buddha, hearing of this, sat in the path of the army on the road, very few roads back then, and sat in the road, and uh, knowing that the king would come, and the king had a great respect for the Buddha. And the king asked, why are you sitting by the side of the road on this hot day underneath a dead banyan tree? And the Buddha said, the, my people are my shade. And meaning that he was there too, wanting to protect them and advise the king not to invade in which the king took his advice and withdrew his troops. That, I would say, is an appropriate response to, you know, if one has power, as the Buddha did, to exert that to try and reduce suffering. But this feeling of revenge was very powerful in this King Virudaka's mind and uh, later went back and ignored the Buddha's counsel and went and slaughtered uh, his people, the Shakyans. But what's powerful about that story is um, here we have this sage called the Buddha who is renowned for his great meditation powers and his teaching of nonviolence and ethical behavior and non-harming, all of that. And clearly also responsive to life and political events around him. He didn't just sit in his cave and go, oh, yeah, oh well, it's their karma. No, he actually took action, as much as action as a, as a renunciate monk could. So our practice is asking us to sit in the middle of our life and our life circumstances, which involves also our political situation, to, and asks how do we live in wisely, ethically, kindly, and how do we sit in the middle of that with awareness, with presence?
And of course, we will all face innumerable difficult challenges. Personal, political, existential, economic, familial. And our practice is a support for that, for these times, for these difficult times. What else do you draw on when you're feeling overwhelmed, confronting suffering, loss, fear, anxiety, trauma? Right? I don't know about you, but I find this election traumatic. It's like a low-grade, repetitive trauma that I can't wait for it to be over because it keeps aggravating a certain trauma both in in my body and also I think in in the collective psyche. The antagonism, the hatred, the lies, the deceit, the really disgraceful behavior. So this is from Suzuki Roshi. I read this quote a lot. I think it's a lovely uh, description in some ways of what practice is about. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation till there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love or your political opponent gets elected. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all and that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So I have some dear friends who are going through some both both parties of the this couple are um, going through one one's been suffering with a life threatening illness for many years and recently his partner now is also um, suffering with a life threatening illness and it's been really powerful for me to see how magnificently they've taken this as practice as as a way to to really deepen that quality of presence and love and support and awakeness to this fragile reality that they're both facing they both face uncertain futures in themselves and in their marriage and it's been very very inspiring to see how when we draw on our practice we can really summon forth really great strength and tenacity and clarity and kindness. And of course, life will always test our equanimity. And there's nothing like elections, particularly this one, to test our equanimity. If you thought your equanimity was pretty good, (laughs) just turn on you know, MSNBC or Fox News or whatever it is you don't like watching and and see how your see how your practice is doing. You normally would say, just go home and live with your family for a week, you know, and your parents or whatever, and see how that works. But this, you know, this is you just have to turn the TV, you know, or talk or talk radio or something. So, in terms of the practice, I like to always contextualize what we're doing here because we can get we can it's easy to sort of lose sight with what practice is right 
So the so meditation is sort of the, 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 the ground or the bedrock because it, in meditation we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate awareness, we cultivate equanimity, we cultivate clarity and understanding. And that understanding then moves us in the world with clarity about our intention, our motivation, how we intend to act with kindness, with ethics, with care, with presence, with non-harming. Right? It informs our speech, our choices, our actions, our livelihood. Right? That's, there's, a, there's a sort of radial quality of practice that starts with our, just the ability to be present to life here and then we, we expand that outwards, right? In service of understanding, wisdom, kindness, freedom. And that trains us, hopefully, over the time to face these difficult places we encounter in ourselves and in each other and in life. So I want to share my favorite stories. This is from what was back then a young lama now he's probably how old is he be now he's going to be well, he's going to be mid 30s now he was 13 when this was written so this is an interview with Pema Jones who um, was uh, a reincarnate lama um, Tibetan teacher and um uh, was born in India to a Tibetan mother, mother and American father and then came back to live in the States when he was around seven. So kind of an interesting background. Anyhow, he's, he's, so he's being raised as a, as a lama, but he's also 13 years old, living, growing up in Wyoming. So this has been an interviewer called Chris. Chris says, it must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection to the Dharma? Dharma is the word for Buddhist teachings. It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers, and they just tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche, as opposed to Rinpoche, which is a teacher. Shrimpoche. Those kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them that. Why not, says Chris. Well, I get dissed enough just as it is being Asian. They call me things like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India... Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some jerk in a pickup doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? Well, it's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends where my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. I've got to live with, here with my own karma. Some skinner doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants a stump on my head. You're in a gang, says Chris? Well, it's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own. But by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? Sure, do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they just talk about other stuff. Well, what other stuff? They mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives, and women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have a little enough time as it is with school and Little League and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something. And I'm only 13. I mean, I've got girlfriends and all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? 
I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a therapist. I just hand my students one of the cards, and when they start talking about relationships, I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brothers and sister to Dairy Queen. It's cool. <laughs> Buddhism, Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. There's suffering, you diagnose it, so you give someone a prescription, and you hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine, come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is about choice. So you're fully qualified to teach? Sure, I mostly teach Tonglen, giving and receiving. It's, it's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or has uh, or too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically a giant filter like an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? Well, it's a samsara nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he doesn't really exist separate from me. You know, it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he stops talking and starts beating up on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing about nirvana doesn't help. Don't you see any contradictions in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence despite having been terribly oppressed all his life, says Christ. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. What do you think when, would happen if some butthead pulls a gun in his holiness? Do you think those guys, bodyguards, would practice some nonviolence or bust some karate moves on him? <laughs> No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so anyhow, Lama Pema Osel and his working out dealing with racism and American wackiness. Right? So you know, we have these ideas of equanimity that we should just look like this all the time, right? Not so. Not so. But we are also invited to find that place of steadfastness, of balance in the midst of turbulence, right? Turbulent times, political, social, economic, personal, relational, romantic, right? We all have turbulent times. So how do we meet those? How do we show up? Do we react? Do we contract? Do we hate? Do we blame? Do we polarize? Do we demonize? So easy, especially in the political realm, to, 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 to project onto the other as other. Right? So this is from um, Byron Katie, who's a wonderful teacher and interesting uh, story about how she practices letting go she says she says she's in the kitchen preparing some dinner and she says just when i think life is so good it can't get any better the phone rings and life gets better i love that music can't say say that when i hear the phone go but anyhow as i walk towards the phone there's a knock at the door who could it be i walk towards the door filled with the given the fragrance of vegetables the sound of the phone i've done nothing for it i trip and fall over the fall is so unfailingly there I experience its texture, its security, its lack of complaint. 
In fact, the opposite. It gives its entire self to me. I feel coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little nap. The floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back, you're deserting me, you owe me, you don't thank me, you're so ungrateful. No, it's just like me, it does its job, it is what it is, the fist knocks, the phone rings, the salad waits, the floor lets go of me, life is good. So next time you fall over, <laughs> you think, well, I guess it was time to get cozy with the floor, you know, what do I know, who, who, how do I know what was supposed to happen in the next five minutes? Right, we have this idea of how it should look, right? So what practice isn't is about, it's not about being passive and it's not about being a doormat and it's not about being in, having cool indifference to oneself or each other. It's not a withdrawal from life, although one can choose a path of renunciation and withdrawal. That is, that is a, a path that some you know, renunciates and monastics particularly choose. Um, but it's still not a renunciation, withdrawal from life. It's very intimate and engaged with life. Whenever I talk to monastics who constantly get asked or, you know, like, oh, it must be so nice. You, you're living in the country with friends and the, you don't have to work and you meditate all day and people cook for you. And they say, yeah, that's, you know, that's all that's true. And, you know, try living with 20 people you don't like very much for the rest of your life. Just see how that one works for you. There's no divorce. You, you don't get to decide where your teacher sends you or who you have to share a room with or who you go on, you know, pilgrimage for six months. You just, that's who you're with, right? That's, that's relationship. As we know, relationship is not easy. And it's also not about bypassing, right? There's a lot of spiritual bypassing in the, in the spiritual world, the New Age world, right, where we try to hover above the messy complexity of life and thinking we're above it. We're sort of, you know, we've got our mala beads on and we're chanting and, you know, it's not what it's about. It's about a very immediate embrace and engagement with life and all of its messiness. So including an election cycle, it means how do we engage? What do we do? Do we vote? Do we get out there? Are we registering people? Are we campaigning? Are we raising money? Are we donating money? What's our relationship? Or are we not? Are we, are we, are we, are we disengaged? Not that there's any imperative that you need to be one way or the other, but to explore what your relationship is. Is it conscious? So one of my favorite lines, which I think I shared last time I was here, um, from the Sixth Zen Patriarch, where he says, do not think awareness and kindness are separate. They are one and the same. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Okay. Substitute awareness with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of mindfulness. If we're cultivating mindfulness and awareness and clarity and understanding, the natural unfolding out of that is caring, is non-harming, is kindness. Or compassion to action, where we see and we act, we respond to the suffering in the world. A friend of mine just drove up to the Dakota Pipeline protest, which is being severely 
uh, uh, I'm not sure what the word is really, when you're facing, you know, military style um, policing and um, desecration of your sacred lands and your people's burial grounds and potential desecration of your water source because of the pipeline. So I remember when I was first studying with uh, Christopher Titmus, who's a Vipassana teacher, wonderful Vipassana teacher, used to teach here from England, and also an activist and Green Party politician formerly and um, very active. And um, so we were meditating at this temple in Bodh Gaya, which is a rather very sacred site uh, for Buddhists. And, um, and the temple had, that had been renovated, you know, it was, it was, it was a lost relic for, for millennia, and then it was found and then renovated and you know, cleaned up. And, and then um, as Buddhism was becoming popular, there was more money pouring into the, the, uh, the temple. And one year, the Sri Lankan government wanted to put a golden fence around the tree. So the tree is a descendant of the original tree that the Buddha was supposed to attain awakening under. So it's a very sacred tree and it's a very special to be sitting underneath it uh, as he did many thousands of years ago. And, um, and it was a very interesting, uh, you know, I think the intention was wholesome, you know, wanting to sort of honor the tree. But basically what happened is it was like a golden cage around the tree. And they spent a million dollars on this. Quite, it was about the size of this stage. Not very big. Golden fence, about eight foot high, which looked like a cage for the tree. It looked like imprisoning the tree in gold. And because it's in Bihar, which is the poorest state in India, they had to therefore, and they just put a million dollars worth of gold. Where, and basically, it's a lawless state. There's bandits, and I mean, it's very lawless. So they had to have an armed guard in the temple 24-7 to protect the golden cage. You know, there was a lot of irony in this, you know, what was probably a a, a benevolent gesture. Um, um, It's back. Um, So... Uh, when the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka or the President of Sri Lanka came to inaugurate the the cage, the the fence, um, uh, and he was surrounded by a lot of military and you know police protection, and and Christopher was determined to to, to make his protest known, and so um, somehow I know he was wearing you know sort of Indian kota pajama and. Um, he managed to just walk right through the police and the military and confront the the uh, prime minister. It's like you know, is is an, and can't you use this money for schools? Can't you use this money for local education and poverty and 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 whatnot? And I was just incredibly impressed by his tenacity and boldness and courage. I mean, he got into trouble with the authorities for you know <laughs> harassing a foreign dignitary, um, but I just really appreciated his. Action, like he cared, you know, he he built a school for the for the local children and and did a lot of social projects there and um, and was was really acting out of his own wisdom and clarity. So many many beautiful examples in, in, in 
course, in our lives and in, 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 in any culture and there's beautiful examples in Buddhist history. I think of you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's work uh, when he was you know, many decades ago in Vietnam, you know, working for peace in the midst of the most horrific war conditions, hated by both sides, shot at by both sides, bombed by both sides, imprisoned by both sides, and yet remained steadfast, steady, you know, meditative, sowing seeds of peace, rebuilding schools, rebuilding communities, telling his monks and nuns to go walk in the herb garden at night so they wouldn't lose mindful presence while there's interludes between the bombing and the snipers. That's equanimity. That's equanimity. So it requires a certain fearless courage. This practice, when we take it to the nth degree, requires a fearlessness to sit. I remember a friend of mine, Pancho, who's an activist in Oakland who was protesting, I forget, there was was some protest going on some years ago on the Berkeley campus, and he just would sit in meditation in the middle of the demonstration and frequently get arrested. but bearing witness to, you know, to what he thought was unjust. So, and then here we are in this particular election cycle. And so I'm coming from England, and uh, I was just in Europe after England after Brexit, which was its own form of this presidential election. A lot of bigotry a lot of xenophobia, a lot of racism, a lot of um, lies, um, you know, pretty much outright lies about, you know, the virtues of leaving the European Union, you know, and, um, and, and nobody took it seriously, nobody thought it could happen, you know, why would Britain want to leave Europe and all the wonderful benefits of being part of you know, a European community and Brexit vote won you know, the UKIPs the, which is a very divisive racist party you know, triumphed after probably 25 years of quietly campaigning for this decision so and here we are in an election I'm English so I haven't witnessed that many election cycles. I think this is my fifth, certainly the bloodiest and most ugly to watch. The racism, the bigotry, the inciting of violence, the the disgusting, insulting, derogatory language and actions towards women. Um, you know, it's disgraceful, personally. I think it's, I mean, when I travel the world, people ask me, what's going on in America? Like, what? I, we don't understand. How is this person so popular? And I say, I don't know. I don't understand myself. I mean, I think we can, I can read, I can, there are reasons. Right? There's always reasons. A lot of reasons.
in December of 2015, anti-Muslim attacks started surging. In that month, there are 53 attacks, 17 of which targeted mosques and Islamic schools, five of which targeted Muslims' homes. By comparison, when the presidential election season began, or just prior to, nine months earlier, there were only two anti-Muslim attacks. So those communities that have been severely impacted, as we know, because of the license to... uh, to be openly, I would say, bigoted, xenophobic, racist, sexist, and derogatory to whole groups of people. And from a Dharma perspective, the Dharma teachings are teachings of truth, of wisdom, of kindness, of compassion, of non-harming. I'd say this tremendous amount of harm and divisiveness being caused in this election cycle. Of course, you could say it's a poultice and it's just bringing out what's here. It's bringing to the surface and, in that, and it's bringing to the surface in that way may be healthy because it actually makes us look in the face of the suffering in the same way that the, the forcing of the police to wear cameras has therefore escalated the awareness of um, police shootings of unarmed black men, for example, to what seems like an epidemic degree, but I think it's partly it's just raising the awareness. So the, the, the crimes are outrageous, and yet there's more awareness, and therefore beginnings of, a, of an effective, well, I'd say effective, beginnings of a response to that. So how do we react to what we see? Fear, outrage, rage, injustice, anger, terror, sadness, hopelessness, um, righteous indignation. Any of those sound familiar? Anybody had one or two of those? Last night or night before? So how do we sit both with what we're seeing and hearing and reading? How do we sit with what gets triggered in here? Right, That's our practice. How do we sit in the seat and not get blindly caught up in our reactivity which causes more pain, more hatred, more reactivity, more fear, more anger? And at the same time, acknowledge those feelings that can be very powerful of sadness, anger, fear. So the teachings of kindness that the Buddha spoke to, friendliness, he asked, or the, the, the invitation, is that we cultivate a heart that has the capacity to be unrestricted in its kindness, unbounded, boundless. Nothing like an election cycle to see how bounded one's heart is. <laughs> now is the <laughs> right? I like these people, and these people can go to hell. 
and we don't care if they create a separate union or whatever it is, wherever they live. How do we, as Neem Karoli Baba would say, how do we never let people out of our heart? How do we care and yet be clear and wise and stand up for the oppressed or the victimized or those suffering from racism and from violence and from whatever else is coming out of this election? So we need compassion for our own suffering and reactivity and fear, right? Because even though this seems interminable, it is going to end <laughs> at least this particular cycle in eight days. Who knows what will happen after that? Just a revolution, probably. <clears throat> An armed insurrection. And then we need, we need wisdom. We need clarity to see where am I caught? Where am I attached to my opinions? Where am I caught in my reactivity or righteous indignation or holier than thou or whatever positionality I take that is itself a form of suffering? Where do I make other people into, into others? Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting when I actually have real-time conversations with people from the other side of the political fence from me and I get to know them as people who, just like me, want to be happy, want their kids to do well at school, who want to have a job and prospects and safety and all the other things that we cherish. I travel a lot for my work. I was recently in Colorado and then before that Massachusetts. And, um, and I'm talking to people from all over the country who share very different political views to me. And have genuine concerns, and um, may not be wild about the current presidential candidate choice, but still have their own political perspectives that are different than mine. How can I see, not lose sight of our humanness, despite having different views, different opinions, different political ideologies? Aristotle once wrote, it is the sign of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. A sign of an educated mind to entertain a thought like an opposing thought right? without accepting it. Right? Having spaciousness in the mind to really not know. Because right? a lot of these questions, you know, it's not clear one way or the other. We can look at some data and some theories are disproven, like trickle-down economics, for example. And we need wisdom and discernment to look at what's being said. The rhetoric the demonizing, the scapegoating, the smears, the lies. I think fact-checking websites are having field day these days, right? Because there's a lot of fact-checking to be done, right? I don't 
remember exactly the percentage, but someone was doing a fact check of, of what Trump had said. I don't know whether this was in, in a debate or in general. It was like 91% untrue. And if Dharma teaching is about truth, then that's a problem. Right? How can we have an electoral system where people are mostly espousing untruths? So, so Spirit Rock is a political, I mean political, it's an apolitical, <laughs> oops, little slip. It's a religious nonprofit. We are not allowed to advocate one side or the other, um, which is good because it keeps us, you know, relatively neutral, you know. Um, and, you know, I think it's as, 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 a, as a Dharma practitioner, responsibility to, well, to, to ask how are these teachings informing us? How would, how would the Buddha vote <laughs> if he could vote? Right? How would Jesus vote if he could vote? Right? They'd be voting for the poor, for the oppressed, right? for justice, for the minimization of suffering. Right? And many other things. Right? They'd be basically socialists, probably. Right? Dirty word in this country. Right? But they'd be advocating for the relieving of suffering. Which path genuinely alleviates the most suffering, reduces the most pain in this country and the world? Right? Socially, economically, politically, ecologically. I don't think the Buddha would be denying the truth of climate change. You know, here he is touching the earth. When asked by Mara, who does he think he is to claim this throne of enlightenment? He says, the earth is my witness. Right? I would say the Buddha is a deep ecologist. Right? Knowing deeply the interconnected nature of life, we harm one thing, we harm all things. Right? So hopefully you're all registered to vote and hopefully you're all voting. Right? California is a little bit of a done deal for the most part, but not in certain, certain, certain uh, more local uh, elections. Seats. Maybe your response is to be more involved and more engaged. Maybe you're involved in direct action. Maybe you've already done you know, campaigns. Maybe you've gone off to different states to register people to vote or to donate or to campaign for candidates that you believe are going to be uh, doing more good, reducing suffering, etc. Anybody been registering people to vote? Show of hands, anybody? Yeah, yeah well done. I'm hoping to go off to Nevada this weekend. And then at times we feel despair. Anybody feel despair? Yeah? Right. Despair, hopelessness, helplessness, very common feelings the way the system is set up. It's somewhat designed to make people feel, ordinary people disempowered, even though 
it's really ordinary people at the end of the day who bring about change. This is where change starts from, people like me and you making noise, making trouble. So I always think about the words of Joanna Macy, who's a mentor and friend and teacher here. And when I ask her about despair, because she's been involved in you know, ecological, environmental campaigns for the last 50 years, and starting with nuclear guardianship back in the 60s and the 70s. And, and she says the way to mitigate despair is to act is to do something, is to get engaged, is to find a group of people and do something. Something active, something proactive. Doesn't matter if you fail, doesn't matter if you don't succeed, but to get involved, to do something. Because there's something about that human need to engage and interact. I think our media creates a certain passivity that robs us of that, that engagement. And then we can take refuge in the truth. All things pass. (laughs) All things arise and pass, including election cycles. (laughs) All things, however good or bad, come to an end. All political campaigns come to an end. And then these words from the Buddha, hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by, do, only by love alone does hatred cease. Right? Very wise words. They sound simplistic. Hatred never ceases with hatred. We've seen this time and time again. Every political system that's been overthrown by another violent system replaced by more coercion or oppression, whether it's in Libya or in Egypt or in Rome or in you name it. Hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by love alone does hatred cease. This is a powerful um, admonition to us. How do we love in times of hate? How do we love in times of separation? How do we love in in times of bigotry? Sometimes our love is fierce. Sometimes our love is strength. Sometimes our love is confronting truth. It doesn't mean it's all nicey-nicey, yummy-yummy. This is from the Dhammapada, teaching of the Buddha. Victory breeds hatred. This is a really interesting quote for this time. Victory breeds hatred. The defeated live in pain. Happily the peaceful live, giving up victory and defeat. Victory breeds hatred. The defeated live in pain. Happily the peaceful live, giving up victory and defeat. I was watching the film uh, Chasing Ice last night. Anybody seen that film? It's about some brilliant videographer who... um, uh, wants to get real-time footage and, and, and time-lapse photography footage of the melting glaciers that we all know is happening, but it's all a concept. You know, oceans are rising, glaciers are melting, sea level rise is rising, but it's all very abstract. 
Like it doesn't mean anything except a bunch of concepts, mostly. I mean, it means a lot, but it. it so he wanted to photograph it to see visually what, 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 what this actually looks like, glaciers melting, glaciers receding. So he stations about 30, 40 cameras in these most brutally cold conditions in Greenland, Iceland, and the North Pole, and, and then Montana, I think, and films the glaciers over a period of years. And you see I mean, the, the, how the glaciers are receding miles and miles in just a few years. Right? And you see this, these glaciers the size of Manhattan just carving, you know, when the carving is when the glaciers fall into the sea. The size of Manhattan just falling off and rolling into the sea. And he's capturing this on footage. And it brings it to, into, into real time. This is what's happening with, you know, the diminishment of the, um, you know, these ice fields and glaciers. And there's, I could say, talk about many things about that, but one of the things we never know in the moment is the good or bad consequences of a particular action. Right? So we might look at this election go, horrible, divisive, Nightmare, cause of suffering, right? must be a bad thing. Right? And maybe it is. On one level, it is. On another level, maybe it mobilizes something. Maybe we'll look back in 20 years and go, well, that was really a turning point of something that we can't know what is yet, but shifting something. In the same way that I look at the the the, the cameras on the the off, the uniforms of the officers that are revealing the level of violence that is causing you know a huge outcry for a shift in training and policy and education and justice. So this election is a poultice, and hopefully um, starting real dialogue about what, what is happening in this country. Why is it so divided? Why is there so much anger? Why is there so much hatred? So I was talking to a good friend of mine, um, Stephen Dynan, who runs this thing called the Shift Network. Um, <laughs> We went to a Halloween party on Saturday. He went as Donald Trump, <laughs> which was very funny. <laughs> I have to say, I feel watching people like Stephen Colbert and um, The Daily Show and you know, the John Stewarts of this world make this whole thing bearable for me. I don't know about you, but the comedians in Saturday Night Live who are just doing hysterical skits on this whole circus... That makes it minutely bearable, right? Because if we don't laugh, right, it's not funny. <laughs> so um, that's a line from Wavy Gravy. That's not my own. 
Wavy Grave says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny. It's kind of the same thing. So anyhow, they, he's with a, with a bunch of wonderful teachers nationwide. They are um, uh, creating a, a national day of reconciliation after the election. I think on Wednesday, the, the 9th. Or, um, the, the URL for that is dayofhealing.us. Dayofhealing.us. So, you know, I think that's an important part of this process. How does how do we reconcile divided country? Right? Which has, you know, been divided for a long time, historically. There's another organization called Bridges that are having real-time dialogues with people from both sides of the political spectrum. Another important way to actually listen to each other versus demonize each other on Twitter. So some words from the Dalai Lama. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country, the USA, is spent developing the mind. Instead of the heart, be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate, work for peace in your heart and the world. Work for peace, and I say never again, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. And I'll read this from these well-known words that were on Mother Teresa's wall in her children's home in Calcutta. I think it's very apropos you know, when in these times, like in elections, where one does one's work and then one lets go. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some faithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend create, years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create any, anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. So good luck. No, I hope you, you know, um, you know, next Tuesday, or you probably already voted already, but if you haven't, vote with your heart, vote with wisdom. Encourage others to do the same. Don't isolate. Find community. Take refuge in your practice. Take refuge in awareness. Take refuge in your heart. Take refuge in love. Take refuge in this too shall pass. Thank the heavens. So as Romy was saying, I, um, my new book is out called Make Peace With Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Inner Critic. I'll be doing a more official book launch uh, talk on, I believe it's Monday the 21st. Um, so three weeks from now. Um, so I'll be talking about the theme, the, the critic, which is always a fun topic, in case you know someone who has one. Um, 
and um, I'll, I'm happy to sign books tonight or then. Um, and the other thing I want to announce is I've, um, I usually I run a retreat every year in Baja, Mexico. It's a wonderful kayaking, mindfulness, silent retreat. Um, and I run it for about a week. And this, this particular retreat filled very quickly, so I put on a, on a second retreat. And they're in late March. And a very exquisite, serene, wild, beautiful nature. And a beautiful way to experience the teachings. So check that. I've got some postcards about that. Otherwise, um, stay sane. Be well. Thank you for your presence. Don't forget to be a mad hatter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate